So I recently uh, finished reading a biography on John Newton. Um, if you don't know who that is, he was a pastor and hymn writer from the 18th century. And some of you have probably heard me talk about him before. I've even mentioned him in a sermon or two in the past. Uh, but uh, he has actually had a really significant impact. His life and legacy have had a really big impact on my own uh, walk with Christ, but he is most notably known for writing the most popular song in all of history, um, the song Amazing Grace. It is the, no song has been sung or listened to more than that song. Um, so, greatest songwriter of all time, you could, you could arguably say, but um, I don't bring it up for that reason. In the biography that I was reading of him, there's a short section of that biography that mentions how he adopted one of his nieces. Um, and he adopted her because, heartbreakingly, her entire family uh, was killed by tuberculosis. Both of her parents and both of her siblings died of the disease. And in fact, she herself, her name was Eliza Cunningham, uh, but she herself had tuberculosis as well. They already knew she had it when they were taking her in, when the Newtons were taking her in. And it wasn't expected that she was going to live very long when she entered their home. Um, and I bring this short account up from the biography because that brief story, the little bit in this hundreds of page long biography, that short bit about her time with the Newtons. Um, she ended up living about two and a half years with them uh, before succumbing to the disease. But that part of the biography was one of the most moving parts of the entire book, hearing about her, her short but incredible life. Um, I just want to read you one paragraph about her from the biography. It says this, Newton kept a moving record of Eliza's last days. They left a deep impression on him because of her peaceful serenity as death approached. Despite being in great pain, she repeatedly thanked her nurses and the Newton's servants for all their kindness to her. She listened with smiles and nods to the prayers, passages of scripture and hymn verses that her adoptive father read out to her. When the doctor, on his final visit, asked her how she was, Eliza replied, this is incredible, truly happy. And if this be dying, it is a pleasant thing to die. She chose a text for her own funeral sermon, blessed are the dead that died in the Lord, and then prayed with a friend and a cousin, telling them, see how comfortable the Lord can make a dying bed. Her last moments with Newton were poignantly described by him in his journal. He said this, about five in the afternoon, she desired me to pray with her once more. Surely I then prayed from my heart. When I had finished, she said, amen. And I said, my dear child, have I expressed your meaning? In other words, did I pray for what you were hoping? And she answered, oh yes, and then added, I am ready to say, why are his chariot wheels so long in coming? She was referencing God taking Elijah up into heaven. 
but I hope he will enable me to wait his hour with patience. These were the last words I heard her speak. The book goes on to say, a few minutes later, on the afternoon of October 6, 1785, Eliza Cunningham died, aged, get this, 14 years and eight months. 14 years old. Another biographer of Newton mentioned that John and his wife Polly were moved, and this is the quote from the biography, by the remarkable sweetness of her temper and the wit, and they witnessed with exceeding joy the development of those religious principles in which she had been trained. Her life, even to her last words, demonstrated the incredible trust and faith and joy that she had in her Savior. What an extraordinary person. What an extraordinary child she was. Friends, how do we live lives like that? How do we face lives of hardship and even death like Eliza Cunningham did when she was only 14 years old? I might have expected to read this if I hadn't told you that this was an adopted child. You might have heard that account and thought that this was referring to someone in maybe their 80s or 90s. They've lived out a full life and are, are ready to go to their Lord. But no, this is a teenager, a young teenager. She was too young. She had so much of her life still ahead of her. Her death came too soon. But instead of complaining and despairing and seeking, sinking into hopeless anger, she was happy. She was thankful. She was wise and joyful. And because of that, she died well. And her testimony is an incredible encouragement to us. How can we be like that? In this day and age, when people typically live very long, typically healthy and fairly good lives, we don't think about that question enough. We don't think often enough, how can I ready myself to die well, to die joyfully? Well, my hope this morning is that our passage will help change that for all of us. We're gonna be looking at Philippians 1, uh, the last bit of verse 18 through 26. And if that passage focuses on this reality that I was just talking about. In these verses, Paul is in prison and he could be facing the death penalty. He could be about to die himself, but he is rejoicing and he tells us how he's able to do that. He gives us insight into how we can live and even die well, just as Eliza did. So we're gonna look at that now. If you, if you haven't already done so, turn to page 980 in the Black Pew Bibles. That's where this passage is. Uh, but again, we're gonna be looking at Philippians 1, the last bit of verse 18. You'll see in the Bibles it's, Verse 18 is broken up into two different paragraphs. So we're gonna start 
um, at the end of the verse, at the beginning of the paragraph, and read through verse 26. And be thinking about what I just said um, as we look at that. So please follow along with me as I read Philippians 1, um, 18b through verse 26. Paul wrote this. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Friends, my hope this morning is that we can learn from Paul so that we can be like him and like Eliza Cunningham. I want us to be able to rejoice even when the inevitable storms of, storm clouds of life roll in. My prayer is that we would be a church of people who live and even die joyfully, no matter what comes to us. And it's crazy if you think about it that we even need to, to pursue that. None of us want to be joyless. Being unhappy is, by definition, not fun. We don't like to not have joy. Yet, it is the easiest thing in the world to be joyless. Have you ever thought about how counterintuitive that is? The one thing we don't want to experience and feel is one of the things that's easiest for us to think and feel. We are prone to complaint and unhappiness. Joy does not come easy to us. So sometimes we even need reminders that there is another way that we can be joyful. We can be joyful even when things are hard, even when we are dying potentially, I hope we'll see and fight for that joy. I, I want to start off this sermon by pointing out, I don't want us to come to the end of this, this morning and just feel guilty for jo being joyless people. That's not what I want. What I want and hope and pray is that we would see that though the fight for joy is hard, joy can be found in Jesus Christ. I want us to hope for that. I want us to expect and eagerly pursue that with confidence. I don't want us to feel guilty and just wallow in the fact that we don't feel joyful a lot. That's going to be our reality. But what I want us to know is that joy can be found even when it seems impossible. So let's pursue it together. 
That's my hope for us this morning. My proposition is this, rejoice because to live is Christ and to die is gain. That phrase taken straight from verse 21 is the heart of this passage. It's the heart behind Paul's ability to rejoice no matter what is happening to him. And it's what I want us to focus on this morning. And the way that we're gonna look, approach this sermon is just by looking at both aspects of that, of that statement. First, we're gonna see what Paul means when he says that to live is Christ. And then second, we're gonna see why death is gain. What does he mean by that? So let's begin with the first part. To live is Christ. What does Paul mean by that? And why can that actually cause us joy? Now, it's important to start with remembering the context that we're in in these verses, in this passage. Remember back to previous sermons that we've done so far in this series. You should remember that Paul is in prison at this point. He's either in jail or under house arrest. We don't really know. But either way, he is imprisoned. He is probably chained to a guard, actually physically and literally chained and attached to someone at all times. The guards probably are taking shifts being attached to Paul. There's no privacy, there is no freedom, there is no fun or enjoyment for him to experience. And to make it even better, he could be about to be killed Yet, even at the threat of facing the death penalty, he takes it in stride. Look with me back at verses 18 and 19. He says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is rejoicing because he knows he will be delivered but here's the key. What or who is he be, being delivered from? Let's keep going. Look with me at verse 20. Paul says this. So he, he just said, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is. So he's, he's going on to explain the deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So notice what Paul is saying here. When he mentions deliverance, he's not talking about getting out of jail. Now, I was looking at numerous commentaries about this, and a couple of them have speculated about this. Some of them have proposed that maybe that's what he's talking about. Most of them land on that not being the case. And I agree with those who, who think when he's talking about deliverance here, he's not, being, he's not talking about going free, being released from jail. That's not the deliverance he's talking about here. Because notice the end of the verse. His deliverance cannot be a matter of just getting out of jail because he points out that his deliverance could come through death. He says right there at the end of verse 20, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. That's the deliverance he's talking about. 
Christ being honored in his body, whether by life or by death. If his deliverance is talking about being released from jail, he would not be adding or by death at the end of that statement. He's saying there's a deliverance that he's experiencing, that he will experience, that could come about whether he lives or he dies. Facing the death penalty is not being delivered if you define deliverance in terms of earthly freedom. So that can't be what he means, as I've already said. He's got to have something else in mind. So what is it? Paul is talking about deliverance in a spiritual sense here. In fact, the word translated as deliverance here in verse 20 is soteria in the Greek. And you've, I don't even know Greek very well. I've, I just know a little bit from just reading concordances, but I'm sure most of us don't know Greek in this room, if any of us do. But you might have heard that term before, soteria. Have you ever heard the term soteriology? It's the theology of salvation. It's the study of salvation. The word soteria is translated most literally as salvation. Paul is talking about his spiritual well-being and welfare here, not his earthly one. He's rejoicing because no matter what happens to him physically, his spiritual welfare is safe and good and secure. That's the deliverance he's talking about. Plus, notice what he's saying again in the rest of the verse. Look with me again at verse 20. I really want to make sure you, you see this. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul ties his deliverance and rejoicing, therefore, because remember, he's rejoicing because he's knowing he's gonna be delivered. He's, he ties those things to two things. His rejoicing and deliverance are tied to two things. One, his lack of shame. He will not be at all ashamed, as he says. And two, that he's able to honor Christ either by life or by death. So in other words, Paul sees himself as being delivered as long as he is able to glorify Jesus Christ. Redeemer, when you think about your own joy, do you make that same connection Paul isn't tying his joy to how comfortable he is or what he has or how good his circumstances are. So often we think our joy is dependent upon how we feel or what our circumstances entail for us. Isn't that what society tells us to do after all? Society tells us, does something make you feel good? If it does, then that's good and right. Embrace it. If it doesn't, though, then it's fundamentally harmful for you and that you should avoid it. Only do what feels right. That's basically what we... Society is constantly communicating this idea to us that if you don't see how something benefits you, if it causes you any sort of distress at all, then reject it, avoid it. 
embrace things that make you feel good. And the thing is, not just does our culture reinforce that for us, but our own pride does too. In our pride, we want to feel good. We want to make our lives and the way that we process things to ultimately be about how does this benefit or not benefit me and me alone. Without even consciously doing it, when something happens to us, we consider these questions. We ask ourselves, is this good or bad for me? Does this have good or bad consequences for me? What is the effect that this has on me? And our joy becomes naturally dependent upon how something impacts us and only us. But pay close attention to what Paul is saying here. He is completely reorienting how we should think about joy. His joy is a result of the fact that he has honored Christ, not himself. He is joyful because he knows that whether he gets out of jail or whether he's executed, he has exalted and magnified his Lord through his preaching of the gospel. Paul's joy isn't dependent upon his feelings, but on Jesus' feelings towards him. That's why he mentions that he isn't ashamed. His joy comes from knowing that he has honored and pleased Jesus and therefore has nothing to be ashamed of. What it comes down to is this. For Paul, if he has honored Jesus, he is happy. If he hasn't honored Jesus, then he isn't. It has nothing to do with his circumstances. It has nothing to do with what is happening to him. It has everything to do with how his circumstances and life serve the cause of Christ. That's how Paul's joy worked. His joy was not about how he felt or how things were going for him. It was utterly centered around Jesus and again, how his circumstances could glorify him, his Lord, not himself. He wasn't asking himself, what does this mean for me? He was asking, what does this do for Christ? How can I honor Jesus in these circumstances? And if he could do so, then praise be to God. That is reason to rejoice. Like I said before, this is a total reorientation of how we typically find joy in things. If something has, has an obvious earthly benefit to us, it's easy to be happy in that thing. It's easy to find joy in it. If something doesn't, though, we're so prone to becoming sad and angry. We're so prone to complaint. But Paul is trying to change that. And in a sense, God is trying to help us change that too. When things don't go well for us, that's not a situation that should cause us to wonder, is God good? Should I have joy right now? Those are occasions for us to recognize that God is showing us how can I glorify Christ and him alone, regardless of what the benefit is to me. 
Let me give you just three examples that help communicate what I'm trying to say. These are just three scenarios I was just kind of reflecting on for myself. These are three things that happened to me just recently in like the last week um, as I've been meditating on this passage. These are three occasions that I did not rejoice when I could have and should have, but didn't. So first, um, one quick scenario. So uh, I had ordered a package. Um, I had ordered something online and um, the package was delayed. It got stuck in Indianapolis for whatever reason. I don't know why, but um, it didn't arrive when I was hoping it would arrive. And just so you know, it was a candle. It was nothing significant. It was nothing big. It was nothing that I needed in any way, shape, or form. Totally optional to my life. I just like candles. Um, if you know me, I always have like a candle or something lit at home. But um, I digress. Totally unnecessary thing. Ordered it online and it came a day or two late. And when I got online and saw that it had been delayed, I could have rejoiced. I could have thought, all right, this package is late, but that's really actually okay because the world doesn't revolve around me. And this is occasion for me to trust in God's wise and good timing for things. I can trust that if it didn't come when I wanted it to, there's a good reason for that. I could have thought those things. I could have thought about how this circumstance of me not getting the thing when I wanted it was an occasion that I could glorify Christ by showing my trust in him and his timing. That's not how I responded. When I got online and saw that, I just stewed in frustration and annoyance for a little while. It wasn't long, but I was annoyed by this package being late. Something that, again, is so trivial and unnecessary for my life. Again, an occasion I could have rejoiced. But instead of asking, how can I honor Christ through this? And instead of seeing how I could have honored him in it, I just was focused on, what does this mean for me? The thing that I want, I don't have. Therefore, I am upset. Again, I thought about my joy was dependent upon how I felt, how it benefited me. Therefore, I wasn't rejoicing when I could have rejoiced in recognizing this is an opportunity for me to trust my Savior and honor him but I didn't do that. Second situation. Um, I, I get recurring digestive issues every once in a while, and I've had a more recent flare-up of that. And the other night, um, I had a particularly bad instance of that, and it was significantly hindering my ability to sleep. And again, I was laying there in bed, really uncomfortable, wanting to sleep, but couldn't. And... I was faced with the, the choice. Do I rejoice now or do I not? And I didn't. I, rather than rejoicing, I got angry, I got discouraged, I got sad because I wanted to feel physically well. I wanted to sleep. I wanted to just feel good. And I was angry that I wasn't feeling that. 
However, I could have rejoiced. I could have seen that even in that moment, even though I wasn't feeling good, I could have acknowledged I don't feel good, yet, nevertheless, this is an occasion when I can rejoice and say, you know what, I don't feel good, but that's okay because my hope is not in, the, in my physical well-being. My hope is in my spiritual well-being, and that is unchanged right now. No matter how I feel, my spiritual state is still secure in Jesus. I could have rejoiced in that. I could have trusted in that and not been angry, and that would have glorified Jesus, but that's not what I did. Again, I stewed in my anger and bitterness in that moment. Or the third situation, this just happened yesterday. <laughs> it's kind of comical. It was comical to me afterwards. But um, so I was at the store and uh, I just had to quickly run to the store and get something. And I was in one of those self-checkout lines. And I don't know about you guys, but I always have issues with those for some reason. I'll always scan something, put it in my bag, and it'll all of a sudden say that there's something in the bagging area that's not supposed to be there. And so I have to try to take it out. And then it says that the, the, the item that I just scanned isn't there, so then I have to try to put it back. But then it says, unknown item in the bagging area again. And it's like, I just have to wait for the person to come over and like one of the employees type in their code or whatever and then they make it go on and then usually it just happens once but it happens every time I do the self-checkout. And so this was happening uh, again and I, so I scanned the item, put it in the bag, it says unknown item in the bagging area and um, one of the employees comes over of the store that I'm at and um, she proceeds to tell me oh, uh, you didn't scan your items quickly enough. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, is that really the reason that, <laughs> that this is not working right? Um, and she, she's insisting. I, I, I didn't respond to her, but she, she's repeating this statement. She really wants me to get the fact that you needed to scan your items faster, sir. Um, and so I'm just internalizing this. And... Um, she tries it herself, and lo and behold, she tries to scan it quicker, and the exact same thing happens. Um, so obviously that's not it. But even after the fact, she still insists. Sir, you, like she even continued to tell me as she was walking away, make sure to scan your items more quickly next time. And in that moment, again, I didn't say anything, which I'm glad. Um, but internally, I was saying things. Internally, I was angry. I wanted to vindicate myself. I wanted to tell her how wrong she was and how right I was in thinking that she was wrong. I was not rejoicing in that moment, and I was not loving her either in that moment, even if I said nothing to her face. Yet, in that moment, when I thought I was being and could have been unjustly criticized, I could have rejoiced, and yet I didn't. I could have seen that as an opportunity to demonstrate Christ's humility and meekness by loving her and maybe even thanking her for pointing that out 
so that I could maybe work. Who knows? Maybe, I, maybe she was right. I could have been wrong. I could have, regardless though, in that moment, that was an opportunity for me to absorb that response from her, even if I thought it was unfair. I could have forbore that criticism and seen that as an opportunity to demonstrate Christ-like humility and meekness. I could have seen that as an example, an opportunity to honor and glorify my Lord by just taking it and loving her well. But I didn't. I didn't rejoice, but I could have. So all three of those are, are situations that I'm not alone in. All of us face things like that every single day. Opportunities when we could be rejoicing, but instead we choose another way because we look at what does this do for me? What does this mean for me? How does this benefit me? Instead of thinking, how can I honor and glorify Jesus right now? And if I can, then that is reason to rejoice and be glad. I wish I had handled those situations better, but I handled them poorly because my joy was dependent upon my circumstances and how they benefited me, not Jesus. And that gets to the fundamental meaning of the first half of Paul's statement. In verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. Paul can rejoice no matter what because he has a proper definition of his life. When he says to live as Christ, Paul is saying that his life is based around Christ. He is saying that what makes life good is Jesus' presence in it and his ability to demonstrate and to put him on display. Jesus is his bottom line. No matter what else is taken from him, as long as he has Jesus Christ, his Lord, he is happy. Look with me at Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. Flip the page and look at this passage. Actually, I don't even know if you have to flip the page. Maybe you have it open on your phone. But look with me at Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. Same letter that, that we have here. Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That is what he means by to live is Christ. That's what he means. And the beauty of that is that our joy, if our joy is dependent on whether or not we have Christ, then we never have occasion in which we can't rejoice if we are trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And alternatively, that also means that when we are struggling to rejoice, the issue is not our circumstances. The issue is what we love um, the issue is that we love to add an and at the end of Paul's statement there. At the end of to live is Christ, we add an and. We make it to live is Christ and good health. 
We make it to live as Christ and comfortable living. To live as Christ and financial stability. Or maybe it's something that sounds nobler than those things, but is just as dangerous and wrong. To live as Christ and having a fulfilling job. To live as Christ and being a good spouse and parent. To live as Christ and having a successful ministry. Again, those things might sound better. Those are good and right things to pursue. But when we add them to our definition of what is life, it is dangerous and wrong for us to do so. Friends, when we are joyless, it's because Christ isn't enough for us. That's our problem. He ceases to be our bottom line in those moments. And that is what idolatry is. It's when we take something, again, even something really good, it is a noble and right thing to want to be a good spouse or parent, to care and love for others well, to be a good friend, to have a a great ministry and fruitful life, to have a fulfilling job, and to, to honor God through you, the stewardship of the things that he's giving you. Those are all good and right things to pursue. But when our joy, when having, when our definition of life is dependent upon those things, we have made them idols. We, um, we make contentment dependent upon Um, I'm sorry. When we lack any of those things and we think life cannot be good or joyful, we are putting our hope in something beyond Jesus. We are saying that he is not sufficient for us. He is saying, yes, maybe we, we would even admit we need him, but we still need this other thing. That's not what the Bible teaches us. So let me ask you this. What is that for you? What would destroy you if you lost it? If the Lord took everything away from you, what would be the thing that just broke you? Losing your family? Losing your friends? Losing all of the money that you have? losing your reputation? Let me put it another way. What do you devote yourself to maintaining or growing and building? What matters to you the most? What do you stress about the most in your life? All of those questions are meant to help us consider and think about what is my joy dependent on beyond Jesus Christ? I'm not saying losing those things won't hurt. I'm not, we can, it can be, it is grievous and an occasion to mourn if we lose family and friends and all of those things. I'm not saying that it's, it's good to lose those things. That's not what I'm saying. It's still, being joyful doesn't mean that we don't grieve and mourn. But I'm, what I am saying is even if we lose those things, we can still 
be joyful. We can still trust and know that God can work in and through us. And for that, we can be content. That's what I'm saying. Look at it this way. View your joylessness as a spiritual fever, in a sense. Now, fevers don't feel good when you have one, but it is good because it alerts you to the fact that something is wrong with your body. If you have a fever, that means your body's fighting off something. It means you've got an infection or a virus or something is wrong. Fevers help point that out to us. Joylessness can serve the same role for us. When you find yourself struggling or failing to rejoice, ask yourself why that is. View your lack of joy as a symptom and indicator that something deeper is wrong. At the risk of being overly simplistic, if you think about it, that's what biblical counseling is. I've had plenty of people approach me and ask, how do you counsel people biblically? And the answer is, help people, like, notice where people are lacking joy and follow that joylessness to the source. Help the people see what they are adding to their definition of life. What are they adding to the end of to live as Christ? What's being added to the end of that statement? And help them see Jesus is enough for them. In my earlier examples that I pointed out, those three examples I mentioned, my lack of joy should have told me that there were idols in my heart in those moments. In the first one, when I was talking about the package being late, I wanted convenience. I was adding that to my definition of life. My life, having a good life, is not only dependent upon having Christ, but having convenience as well. In the second situation, when I wasn't feeling well, I was adding physical comfort to my definition of what I need in my life. Or in the last one, I was staking what I needed on my reputation. I was saying I need my reputation to look a certain way. And so I was upset when that idol was threatened. That's what I was doing in all of those situations. I wasn't joyful because my idols were threatened. And I responded in joylessness and anger. Church, we've got to recognize the idols in our hearts and we've got to be able to lay them down before Jesus. Our joy depends upon it. Paul's did. And look at little Eliza Cunningham as a beautiful testimony of this reality that not only should we do this, but we can do this. She laid down the things that she could have added to her definition of life, which she could have said, I need this to be happy. I don't, Jesus is not enough. I need something else. She could have said that, but she didn't. Her definition was simple, to live as Christ. It wasn't to live as Christ and having a long, fruitful life. It wasn't to live as Christ and feeling good. It wasn't even to live as Christ and achieving greatness. Those are all things that we all so typically want. And again, those aren't even bad things to desire. but they weren't ultimate things for her. And because of that, she was able to be joyful and thankful and loving even in the midst of her suffering.
I want that kind of tough joy, that kind of stable joy. And I want all of us to want that too. But Paul's rejoicing wasn't limited, though, to just living for Jesus. Same with Eliza. Their joy extended even to death, the final and ultimate test for all of us. As Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that's what I want us to look at now. Look with me at verses 22 through 26 in Philippians 1. Paul wrote this. If, so right after saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he says this. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. These verses are an intimate glimpse into the mind of Paul. He lets us into the conflict going on within his own heart. He just told us that for him to live as Christ and to die is gain. And now he thinks through what that means in this particular situation. He knows I could be let go or I could be killed. I don't know what's better. I don't know what I would choose in this situation. He shows us why, what he's wrestling with. Um, on the one hand, he's happy if his charges are dropped, because he knows that that will mean he can serve and benefit the church more. He wants to go on planting churches and reaching the lost. And in particular, he longs to see the Philippians again, as he says in the last verse. And being released from jail means that he'll be able to see them. So if he gets out, he will be happy. On the other hand, though, look again with me at verse 23. This is a shocking verse. And so counterintuitive to how we so often think. He says, I am hard pressed between the two. So this is the two options of being released or being killed and executed. Those are the two things. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. So do you see? He's saying, I can be happy if I survive and live and get out because that means I get a, a longer, fruitful ministry. I get to come and see you. I love you guys. That will be great. But he's saying, for my own sake, personally, my desire is to depart and be with Jesus. Do you get what he's saying here? Paul is saying that personally, he kind of hopes he'll be charged and executed yeah, it would be good if ever, for everyone if he gets out, but for his own sake, he kind of would prefer to die. He says that that is far better than living. Church, let that sink in. Who of us thinks that way? What do we do with a statement like that? 
there's three quick things that I want to point out. This is going to be quick. Three quick things that I want to point out about what he means by that statement. First, Paul does not have a death wish. He's not being suicidal here. He doesn't want to die to escape a life that he doesn't think is worth living any longer. You can't read the rest of these verses, verses 22 through 26, with the exception of verse 23. You can't read those verses and think he thinks his life would be not worth living. He absolutely sees life as worth living. He sees value and goodness in that. He's communicating the exact opposite of wanting to just escape life because it's not worth living. That's not what he's saying. He does not have a death wish. He isn't devaluing life. And second, Paul's not saying that death is inherently good. Remember that this is Paul we're talking about, the person who wrote 1 Corinthians 15, an incredible chapter of Scripture that talks about life and death. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, he's talking about us. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, the, on, puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. No, Paul does not think death is good. Death was the enemy. But, and here's the third thing, and this is the twist on this passage, as we see, in the, even as we see in that 1 Corinthians 15 passage I just read, Jesus Christ has conquered death so that through it we now gain from it. Jesus has taken something bad and repurposed it for good. He has taken what was bad and wrong and defeat and he has gained victory over it. Like I said, he's repurposed it. He has taken what is bad and accomplished what is good through it. That is the key to what Paul means when he says that death is gain. That is why it is far better to him. To die is gain because Christians get to be with Jesus when they die. That is the gain in death. In the same biography that I quoted from at the beginning when I was telling the story of Eliza Cunningham, um, there's a quote taken from a letter that John Newton wrote to a friend near the end of his own life. He said this while reflecting on his own impending death. Newton said this, what is death to a believer in Jesus? It is simply a ceasing to breathe. If we personify it, so he's saying if we, if we wanna think about death as a person, we may welcome it as a messenger sent to tell us that the days of our mourning are ended, into, ended in, and to open to us the gate of everlasting life. For the Christian, that is what death is. It is a messenger telling us that our days of mourning are over and we are now entering into eternal life. 
He goes on, the harbingers of death, sickness, pain, and conflict are frequently formidable to the flesh. Things that are hard for us are so difficult in the flesh, but death itself is nothing else but a deliverance from them. That's what, that's what Newton is reflecting on. And that's what, Jesus, that's what Paul is saying when he says that death is gain. He's reflecting on for the Christian, for those who trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, death is not an end of anything good. It is only an end of everything bad. It is the beginning of the fulfillment of everything good for us because it is when we get to enter into the presence, the full and complete presence of Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ died on the cross because all of us deserve death. We are owed it. As Romans says, the wage of sin is death. And you guys, we have all earned that wage. But I am not just talking about earthly death. I'm talking about eternal death and not annihilation where we simply cease to exist. I mean eternal torment and anguish because of being separated from God fully and completely. All good removed and separated from us. That is the punishment we deserve for our sins. Every single one of us. And every single one of us would face that reality were it not for Jesus dying. He died for the sins of all who believe in him. He died the death that we deserve so that we could have eternal life. He took that penalty and punishment upon himself. If you are here and you have not turned to Jesus, I beg you to do so. Eternal life cannot be yours without Jesus. You have already earned the wage of sin and it is death. And I don't say that as someone on my high horse saying that you've earned that and I haven't. I did too. The fact is, I am not freed of that because of myself or what I do. I am freed of that because Jesus died for me and through my faith in him, I am freed of the guilt and penalty of my sins. And you can be too. He wants to bear that weight for you. Turn to him. Define your life according to Jesus and see that he is far greater than the things that you're currently living for. And friends, if you are here and have turned to Jesus, rejoice in him. He endured your death for you. And in return, he has given you eternal life. If your earthly body dies before Jesus returns, instead of hell, you get to be with Jesus Christ. You will go fully and completely to him, united with him in a way that is perfect that none of us have experienced and can never experience in this life. As Jesus said, or as, as Newton said, Jesus will take all of the death 
and sickness and pain and conflict that you have experienced in this life and he will end it. The sadness that you feel now, the insecurities that you have, the sins that you can't kill, the shame that you can't shake, it will all be gone. From that point forward, you will only know joy and peace and love and satisfaction. You can't imagine yet how wonderful you will feel when you are with Jesus Christ. It is far better than anything and everything you could have ever experienced in this life and will ever experience in this life. Christian, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Believe that for yourself and for those who have gone before you in Christ. That is why Paul rejoiced regardless of what he faced in this life and even to the point of death. That's why Eliza, little Eliza Cunningham, was joyful and even almost impatient in facing her own death. They both longed to be with Jesus more than anything else. I pray you do too. As long as we live, we get to serve and glorify our Lord. So rejoice in that. But when we do die, we enter into incomprehensible happiness and delight with him. Be encouraged by that and be able to rejoice in that too when that time comes. Brothers and sisters, don't fear hardship or death. Fear living for someone or something other than Jesus Christ. Or better yet, let me put it this way, don't fear at all. Instead, as Paul says in verse 21, rejoice in Christ because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, let that be true of all of us. Help us to define our lives, not according to things that we don't truly need. Father, help us to see that the only true and ultimate thing we have to need is Jesus Christ. And through our faith in him, we have him securely and permanently. And all that, death, all that death does is bring us into a fuller and more precious understanding and experience of that reality. Father, help us to be a church that rejoices at all times, not because our circumstances are always good, not because we don't experience any pain. We are going to experience pain and hardship and suffering in this life. But help us to pursue joy and help us to find it by turning our eyes to Jesus Christ, by knowing that in any and every circumstance, we can make much of him and we can abide and rest in him. Help us to do that. It's in his name I pray. Amen.